We are very excited to be here. It is Holy Week, and I hope that you all have a chance to plug into our special services this week. So Holy Week really is the story of Jesus' passion. We do a special thing here at St. Michael, and not many liturgical churches do this, but if you were with us on Sunday morning or if you worshiped online, you know that we only do Palm Sunday. And if you'd been around in the Episcopal Church for a while before I got here, you probably were used to doing Palm and Passion Sunday, where you kind of walk in waving the palms, and then at some point in the middle of the service, you get whiplash, and you have to read the Passion story, and then you leave in silence. And so it's this like huge shift from the beginning to the end of the service. And so sometime, maybe about 10 years ago, the Episcopal Church decided if you have good attendance on Good Friday to hear the Passion, that you can make a request to only do Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. You don't have to do the Passion story. And so because of our good historic attendance on Good Friday, I made the request and received approval that we could only do Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. We didn't have to go into the Passion story, which allows us to continue to kind of wave the banners and do all the good fun stuff. And so don't prove me wrong, Come to church on Good Friday. <laughs> if we don't have good attendance, they're going to take it away from us. Um, and so we begin tonight with a special Tenebrae choral service. And Tenebrae is, if you've been to Evensong, it's similar. It's almost like if you were to take Lessons in Carols and Evensong and they had a baby. That's Tenebrae. Um, and so Tenebrae is a lovely service. It's kind of a dark very centering experience. Um, there's a little bit of chanting. You get readings that kind of tell part of the prophetic story that sets up what is Jesus's passion. And so a lot of what we do in here, which is we get that historic context. We understand what came before Jesus's life and ministry so that his life and ministry makes more sense to us. That's sort of what Tenebrae is. Tenebrae sets us up for what will be what we call the Paschal Tridrum, which is Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then the Easter Vigil and the first Eucharist of Easter. And so I hope you will plug in. We will be live streaming all of these services. And so although it is really nice to be here in person, if you cannot be here in person, then you are invited to join us online. And we do, it's a pretty decent online experience, um, especially when we got into the pandemic in 2020. We put a lot of time and effort into making sure the online experience was decent so that because we couldn't be in person, still got that anchor and that experience. And so we've continued that and we'll do that this week. So join us. Um, I think if you go to stmichael.org slash Holy Week, you can get all of this information and get all the times of the different services. I think we have something like three or four different services on Good Friday alone. And so you can see if there's a time that matches up for you. But it begins tonight at seven with Tenebrae. All right, we are actually nearing the end of our study. We only have a few weeks left. Um, and so we're going to finish up numbers here in the next few weeks. We're going to do just a week of Deuteronomy because that's all we need. And so we'll finish that story up and then it's summer break. So my goodness, how many more weeks do we have? It's like four, right? You just looked at the schedule, I saw it. Three more weeks, including four, including today. Yeah, okay, so we are only three weeks after this, so it comes fast. 
So reminder, stmichael.org slash RBS, you can find all the old studies, and I will make sure that we get our podcast loaded all the way through Luke that we started years ago. Um, so if you want to catch up over the summer especially, you can do that. All right, so today's lesson, we're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 12 through 19, really. Um, and there are going to be four different parts to our lesson, but before we get jump in, let's have a prayer. Let's have a moment of silence to center ourselves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on this, the holiest of weeks, we ask that you open us up, that you make space inside of us, that we can receive the gift of your passion, that as we move through this week, we can remember once again what it is that you have done for us, and that we can be inspired and transformed to respond with love. Bless all those here present, those joining us at distance, those who cannot be with us today, those who need your healing touch, those we love and see no longer. Give us your blessing that with your presence we can have courage to be the people you have created us to be. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's lesson, we begin in chapter 12. And like I said, four parts. We're going to talk about Miriam and Aaron. Then we're going to talk about the spying in Canaan. Then we're going to look at how God gets mad. And then purification ritual. And we'll discuss all of this. So let's start with chapter 12. We are at the very beginning, chapter 12, verse 1. And we didn't quite make it here last week. And so this is kind of cleaning up last week's study. I'm going to read the first, all 16 verses, the first 16 verses, um, because it's, it's a little dramatic and we should probably hear it. Here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1. While they were at Hezeroth, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married for, married, for he had indeed married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. When there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud went away from over the tent, Miriam had become leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam and saw that she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us for a sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like one stillborn whose flesh is half consumed when it comes out of its mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam had been brought in again. After that, the people set out for Hezareth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. 
we'll stop there. This is a, <laughs> it's an odd passage, and this is one of those that falls under the category of, I want you to have heard it. I don't want us to struggle very much with this, because I think it's natural for us to say, why would God have done that? When I think we know better that the question is, why did the Jewish people want to tell a story about God doing this kind of thing? Let's pick apart this story just to be fair. So Miriam and Aaron complain against Moses. At this point in time, the way the story is constructed, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, their siblings, God's been talking to Moses. Moses had the commandments, his face shown. He seems to be the one in charge. And as you know, human beings tend to like a little bit of power and authority themselves. And so here are Moses' siblings thinking like, what about us? And not only that, Moses has kind of proven himself multiple times in his lifetime to not be the perfect guy. He's made many mistakes, and his mistakes have, to be fair, been worse than Miriam's and Aaron's. Miriam and Aaron have kind of been more generally faithful throughout their life. And why is Moses still the one getting the attention and still the one getting the authority and the power? And they are only prophets, and so they begin to complain. That complaining moment is very human. And I think that it's natural. And most of us feel something like that at some points in our lives, if not yearly or daily. And so we are human. We can kind of get where Miriam and Aaron are coming from. Now let's look at the way they told the story. They told the story. Miriam and Aaron complain against Moses and their response to God's anger seems to be equal. But God's response to them is not equal. So Miriam gets leprosy. Now that word is not the same word that we see in Greek in the New Testament. It actually means essentially that her skin died. And so that's why Aaron in a way says, don't let her be like a stillborn, where essentially she's like shriveled up. I mean, think of like a human raisin. It's really not leprosy. Why though did Miriam get sick? and have to be shut out for seven days. And Aaron just, what? Spoke on Miriam's behalf? I mean, it's really kind of a pitiful, not only did Miriam get sick, but Miriam doesn't even get to speak. Aaron's the one who speaks on behalf of her. Oh, please don't let that happen to her when really Aaron's the one who complained just like Miriam. This is an example for us of the way in which the Jewish people understood the roles of gender within leadership. So we can just take this for what it is. We know this. We don't have to spin this around for too long. I want to note this passage, not because we need to ask why God would have done this, but because the Jewish people told this story in a pretty particular way. Had Aaron and Miriam both received leprosy and both been shut out of the camp for seven days until they were made clean? Okay. But the fact that they did something equal and yet Miriam was punished in a way that Aaron was not gives us a glimpse into the cultural understanding of men and women. We've noted this in many other ways in the stories and people have asked things like, remember back with the Nazarite when we discussed that, if a woman could, be, could take a Nazarite vow? Technically, yes. We don't have much record of that. 
And it's simply just a general preference for the way that leadership worked and men tended to lead. And we know that from the cleanliness laws, part of this was because women often couldn't actually do things they were unclean because of touching blood and other things like that. And so it's, if the cleanliness laws are necessary and we follow those, then it becomes logical that men would be in leadership roles more often than women if for no other reason than they just had the time to do it because they were clean more often than women. So then you back into, are the cleanliness laws there for a good reason? And I will leave you to make that decision. All right, any questions about that? Yes. So Moses is having a hard enough time keeping this rowdy group together, marching across the desert, schlepping the veterans, my Jewish friends say. And here we have another leader that is undermining his authority. And they call that insubordination. <laughs> and there's a real reason that you don't tolerate insubordination. I wonder if that plays into God's are you asking a question? Okay, I'm making a statement. <laughs> um, yes, so Aaron and Miriam are, in a sense, insubordinate to Moses. And what do I want to say to that? When life is relatively easy and comfortable and predictable, then having authority challenged in a healthy way is okay. When life is difficult or when there is a significant amount of, um, I don't know, uncertainty or pressure or oppression or you name it, Unity matters. And so, as you note, in the military, unity is very important because the assumption is, at the worst of times, needing the clarity of a single person making decisions helps keep everyone safer. This is one of those moments where the Israelites are, in a sense, in preparing for what will be war. Um, they will fight, and they will fight a lot. And the idea that they need to remain unified behind one person is necessary. We're human. People buck authority. And I think that you could understand this story very easily as the Jewish people will, for much of their history, be under the control of someone oppressing them. And their identity is really found in their unity. And so stories like this may just simply be reinforcing the necessity of unity in a way that may not be in many other instances. So thank you. Um, I think that for us to understand that as part of their historic context is very, very helpful. All right, any other comments or questions? All right, so the Israelites have now traveled from Sinai to the border of Canaan. And so as we get into chapter 13, the Israelites are now getting ready to potentially enter the promised land. Here we go. Chapter 13, we're sending spies into Canaan. And I'm going to jump around. I'll tell you when I jump. 
Verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of their ancestral tribes, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And so now in the next set of verses, those spies are identified, one person from each of the 12 tribes. Jump down to verse 25. The spies have gone into the land. They have spent 40 days in the land. So verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran and Kedesh. They, at Kedesh, sorry. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the land of the Negev. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people who saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim. The Anakites come from the Nephilim. And to ourselves we seem like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And we'll pause there. Who are the Nephilim? Remember where we saw that? Come on, I know you know. It's right there in the back of your mind, and you're like, yes, Chris, I know where that is. So the Nephilim we, have, we saw back in Genesis with the flood narrative with Noah, the Nephilim are in a sense a giant race of people. It is very possible that the Nephilim are sort of like what we would call demigods. Um, if we know Roman Greek mythology and others, when a god has a child with a human, they become a demigod. So in a sense, they're a bit bigger, they're a bit stronger, they can do stuff. They're not fully godlike, but they're definitely superhuman. And so the Nephilim are probably something like that. And this is the second of only two references in the scripture of what this is. And we should understand it as they're just kind of big and strong. Um, in, back in Genesis, we hear them referred to as giants, but it's, eh, they're really just kind of big. And if you think about humanity, if you think about tribes and people who still have a lot of ethnic unity or racial unity, there are peoples around the world where if you were to stand them next to each other, they're just very different sizes. There are some peoples who are native to certain areas of the world who are just much smaller than peoples who may be native to other parts of the world. And so it's very possible that this is a case of, you know, maybe the Israelites are just not that tall and maybe these people are just taller on average. There is no reason to think that this is meant to imply actual giants. 
this is really meant to imply they're bigger than us, right? I mean, if you imagine a third grader running out onto the playground only to see a bunch of eighth graders, this is like what the third grader would say to you. They're so big. Um, they're coming back and they are in general afraid. They've seen the big people and they are afraid of the big people. And so remember, they've come to this border to go in. And it's never been a secret that there are people who live there. So the entire time they've been coming from Egypt, they would not have expected that Canaan was empty. So conceptually, they know they're going to have to essentially take the land from people who currently live there. But now that they are face to face with this prospect, they're afraid. And so they come back, these spies, and Moses essentially says, so we good? And at least the majority of the spies say, absolutely not. These people are big. We cannot do this. We will be killed. We will be completely defeated. And Caleb speaks up and says, absolutely not. We can go in. We are able to overcome it. Now let's continue and look at how they begin to process this conflict. The spies in general are saying, no, don't go. And Caleb's saying, yes, we can. Look at chapter 14. We'll read the first few verses. <clears throat> All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And they're weeping because the spies have told them that they should be afraid. All the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites, and Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the Israelites, the land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. We'll pause there. The spies come back and they give their first report. Oh my gosh, these people are gigantic. They're going to kill us. And so the congregation goes, ah, why have we been brought here to die? And once again, complain against Moses and Aaron and say, we should have just died in Egypt or we should have just died in the wilderness. Why are we going to die in battle? Then Joshua joins Caleb and this says tore their clothes and essentially kind of throw themselves down with a whole bunch of drama in front of the people and remind them that if God wants this to happen, it's going to happen. And so if God has brought us here, which they believed was the case, and God says, go and take the land, it's going to work out. Now, does that mean completely without any conflict? No. But will they ultimately get what God has promised them? Of course. And yet the people cannot wrap their heads around this. Put yourselves in this moment. They know that they've been 
given a great promise. They know recently, we're talking like within weeks, that they have been taken out of Egypt. They have met with God at Sinai. Remember that God's pillar of cloud and fire is physically in front of them in the tent. And they've come to this point in time and still they are not willing to be courageous and do what God tells them to do. Now we know, I think you know, that I do not need these stories to be historic, to be true. I don't need there to have been a physical pillar of fire coming from where? The sky? I mean, we know now it's not like God's hanging out in the clouds. That's not a thing. And so what are they actually describing? They're describing presence. They're describing something true and real, but does it literally need to be a pillar of fire coming from the clouds? That doesn't need to be for that for me. But that they have been delivered out of Egypt. They are now a free people, able to respond to God with their own choice, and they still are afraid. This now is what's important for us. We know what God wants from us. We know what God has done for us. We know how blessed we are in so many ways. And yet when we are asked to do something that is out of the usual, that is a bit beyond our comfort zone, that doesn't make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside 100% of the time, we often stop and we get afraid. We let the fear control us. We think we don't have enough. We live out of that sense of lack and that fear that we're going to run out of what we need rather than being faithful to God. And we can look back at these people who are right there on the edge of Canaan and say, don't they know better? Except, don't we know better? I mean, I'm prepping right now to preach at Easter. So what do you want to hear? Because I can tell you the story again of finding the empty tomb. That's totally nice. And I can talk for a long time in creative ways and just tell you the story in some interesting way. That's not terribly helpful to you because what we really need to hear at Easter is that we do not need to be afraid. We hear this over and over again. Because for us, Easter can be a nice moment where we get dressed in something pretty and then we go eat chocolate, or <clears throat> we can actually be challenged in a deep way to go beyond our, what we think are our limits, to stretch ourselves, to have the confidence to know we will have enough. When we are faithful, we will be able to do things that we don't know we can because God is with us. Right now, the Israelites had the vision. They knew what they wanted. They wanted to go into the promised land. They simply didn't have the faith to actually cross that river knowing that God would be with them. Now, this is nuanced because what will ultimately happen in their story is that God will help support their slaughter of a lot of people who are simply living their life. We need to be, we need to have the complexity and the sophistication to understand that God is not here to help us go do physically whatever it is that we want. That's not how God works.
God calls to us and invites us into different ways of being, knowing that we will have the strength to go and do the thing that God calls us to do. But that call, that's the hard stuff. We're not always certain. God doesn't just come to us face to face and tell us to go and do. That would be so nice. It would be great. I often think, could you just tell me? Because I'm totally in, I would do it, but it, I just, I need the clarity. And so it's that discernment of call where most of us get tripped up. If God were to just appear right here, you know, Jesus walked through the door and told us something, I'm pretty sure we'd all have the confidence to just go do the thing because thank you, Jesus. But that's just not the way that things work. Instead, God moves through other people in our lives. God speaks to us in ways that stretch us. And we are never 100% in writing certain of what God wants us to do, but we should try. And the gift of our own faith should stretch us. We should be uncomfortable about being so comfortable. We are all comfortable. And I do not want to hear whatever about something that, you know, there are plenty, you know, as a, as a person who is called to be pastoral, I often have to sit politely and listen to people tell me about how stressful it is that they, you know, they can't go to tennis and to the meeting that they need to go to or something like that, which is, you know, I mean, bless your heart. That is, that is heartbreaking, right? Um, and there are certain things that genuinely are legitimately hard, and I know. And to us in our own lives, small things can seem gigantic, I know. But the gift we receive through Jesus is that it's all temporary. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it also means that we can overcome. And that's the part that we aren't quite as well practiced at because we don't, we don't actually have to overcome a lot. It may feel like it, but if we were to actually put down all the things that cause us the greatest amount of stress, we are, we are quite privileged. We don't have to overcome a lot. And so we, in a sense, kind of are out of practice. And I think that's part of what we're called to do is stretch ourselves and put ourselves in situations that actually challenge us because it is the confidence and the courage to overcome that challenge. That's when we really, really develop our faith. That's when our rootedness goes deep. That's when our discipleship becomes very real. And that's really what happened to those first students of Jesus in that first century. When they saw the empty tomb, they didn't go, huzzah, like, yay, Jesus resurrected. I think their genuine response was, oh, crap. Oh, no. I mean, we might think it was exciting. And I think for them, it was like, what the, I mean, we need to, what then now? Because for many of them, they're like, you know, they lost their friend. He was crucified. Horrible. Now he's buried. I guess it's back to fishing. Nope. That's not what God does. And I think for many of them, that would have kind of been okay. Jesus was nice and he did some healing and he did some teaching and great. But I just go back to fishing. 
that would be okay. Nope. And I think for us, that's the real, the problem of Easter. I mean, we can sensationalize it and make it poetic and do whatever we want, romanticize all we want. Easter is our greatest inconvenience because now we have to go do stuff and we have to push ourselves beyond. And when we are face to face with the giants in our lives, are we going to back off or are we going to know God's going to be with us? That's this moment. And all of that put into context helps us understand why the Jews told the story about what God does next. Okay, any thoughts or questions about that before we get into section three? You know, as a true extrovert, it really does help me to talk things out. I do think I have clarity more about what I need to say at Easter. Thanks so much. Um, So so if you hear a little of that on Sunday, you'd be like, "Uh I got it. You just know it came from Bible. Okay. So let's look at section three today. God gets mad. Chapter 14, verse 10b, which in Bible language just means the second half of that verse. Chapter 14, verse 10b. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So let's just pause real fast. What God is saying is I am done with them. So Moses, we're just going to go do something else. Like I'm going to make a great nation with you. This is very similar to what God said to Abraham. So Abraham came, I'm sorry, God came to Abraham and said, through you, I will make a great nation. And Abraham did not say, well, I have a big family, which he did. I have siblings and nieces and nephews and parents and aunts and uncles and all the other stuff. How about all of us? No, Abraham said, okay. And it's through Abraham's descendants that God made this nation. So he, in a sense, God, in a sense, is saying to Moses, I'm going to forget about all of them. They can just go do whatever. And through you, I will make a great nation. But Moses does not say yes. Moses said back to God, no. Look at verse 19. Moses said, forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt, even until now. Then the Lord said, I do forgive just as you have asked. Nevertheless, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the people who have seen my glory in the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and you have tested me these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their ancestors. None of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me wholeheartedly, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. All right. This is the moment when the Israelites could have gone into, into the Canaan, into the promised land, but instead they paused. Excuse me. <coughs> they paused and they got afraid. 
So, God says, all of you, the adults, who are responsible for this decision, you will not get into the promised land, except for Caleb and ultimately Joshua. So remember, there are many versions of this story that are told differently. So between Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, this story is told from multiple perspectives. And so in this moment, sorry, <coughs> I tried to swallow and speak at the same time. Um, from this perspective, Caleb is the only one named, but Joshua will also be able to go into the promised land. And we saw just a few verses ago, Joshua and Caleb, <laughs> sorry, hold on. <coughs> Pardon me. I have some. I'm trying to drink it. <laughs> we know that Joshua and Caleb both tore their clothes. And so Joshua, in a sense, kind of went with Caleb. Caleb may have been the one who spoke out most clearly, but Joshua's in there. And so the two of them are the only two of this entire adult generation who will ultimately make it into the promised land. Now... Moses turns away from Canaan, goes back out into the wilderness. This begins what will be the 40 years of the wilderness period. So up to this point, <clears throat> they've essentially been making their way east from Egypt through Sinai and then hook around. So if we remember, I don't, I don't need to draw the map. If we remember... Egypt is down here, Israel is up here, you've got the Mediterranean. They have gone east and then they've hooked around and they were actually coming west into Israel from what is today Jordan. From that point, they are going back out into what is now Jordan. They will go back down into Sinai. They will wander around for 40 years. And the entire adult generation who were unfaithful, who were fearful, will die out in the wilderness. <clears throat> and so if you think about average life expectancy at that point was certainly not as high as it is now. Pretty much everyone over the age of like 18, 20, you give them 40 years, 60 is a very old age at this point in time. And so they would have essentially just died in the wilderness. 40 years later, they come back now the adults who are ready to fight are the children who have for 40 years heard this story. And so when they get back to this place, they're going in because they don't want to go back out in the wilderness. It would, I mean, you know, they're going to either die in the wilderness, or they're going to die in Canaan, might as well try. It's a little more faithful than that, but that's about it. Okay. Any questions about this? We've got one more weird thing to do. Nope. All right, last section for today. We're gonna to talk about purification. I put in the bookmark chapter 18, I decided that I don't really need to read any chapter 18, so you can do that if you wish, but let's go to 19, because 19's the weird section, and I want to read a few verses of chapter 19 for you, because if you've ever seen, <clears throat> there are multiple movies and TV shows that use this particular chapter to create kind of end of the world apocalyptic stuff um, that looks kind of creepy. And so I want you to have seen it and we'll talk a little bit about it. So chapter 19, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, 
This is a statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish and on which no yoke has been laid. You shall give it to the priest Eleazar, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. The priest Eleazar shall take some of its blood and his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson material and throw them into the fire in which the heifer is burning. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp, but the priest shall remain unclean until evening. And then it goes on and on from there. <coughs> Excuse me. This passage is specifically about priests becoming clean after having been unclean. Priests, <clears throat> we've talked a few times about priests having a higher level of expectation around cleanliness. And that is a proper thing. <laughs> I'm going to keep coughing. <coughs> <clears throat> good grief, <clears throat> that priests have a higher level of expectation about being clean. And so when they become unclean, they have to jump through extra hoops in order to get clean. This red heifer is essentially, sorry, <clears throat> you know, you can't pot. You know what I really need to do? Hold on. You know what? Sing to yourself for a minute. Hold on. All right. I've never actually walked off like that. How funny. No, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Well, you know when you have like, <clears throat> I had that little drip in the back of my nose and I had to just blow my nose. Sorry. Okay. Much better. And I turned my microphone off for the live stream. I just wanted you to know because nobody needs that in their life. Okay. So priests <clears throat> had to go through a cleansing process that was much more significant than just any other person. We can talk about the way that priests needed to do that if we want to, but I think this is most interesting to talk about the way that we relate to the dead. The Israelites at the time had inherited a cultural connection to the deceased. And so, in other words, there is a desire to stay connected to people who have died that can, in a sense, distract people from living their life. We know this as mediums, right? If you want to have a seance, if you want to commune with the dead and hear them speak to you and that sort of stuff, that's, in a sense some of the things that the Israelites would have inherited from other groups. So remember, they were in Egypt for 400 years. 
the Egyptians had a very strong connection to the dead. They, we know of their tombs that there was a very explicit desire to set people up for the afterlife. Tombs were essentially all the stuff that the people would need when they crossed the river. That continued in many different cultures. We, of course, know today, I mean, you've probably all in some way seen or even participated in festivals like Dios de los Muertas or our own sort of All Saints and All Souls where we remember those who have died. And remembering is fine. <clears throat> there is, though, a point at which remembering becomes distracting. And if you've lost someone that you love and you are very sad about it, and you, in a sense, can't let them go, that means you can't then move on with your life. And so Jewish theology develops in such a way where the dead are dead. I mean, they, there is no, for most of Judaism, there is no sense of like grandma's looking down from heaven on us. That's, that's not really a thing in Judaism. It actually kind of isn't a thing in Christianity. We can talk about that another time. Um, so in Judaism, when people die, they die. There is a promised resurrection in the future. But in a sense, until that point of resurrection, nothing's happening. And so the dead are dead. And at some point in the future, everyone will be resurrected and brought into God's full presence. Jesus' resurrection takes that idea and shifts it. So rather than it being a resurrection at some point in the future, now there is a way to live with God right now. That death essentially takes us into God's presence now. That's a shift from what had been a Jewish understanding. So if we put ourselves back in that Jewish theological frame, death is really the end. But though the Israelites right now, as they are becoming Jewish, don't just turn off the way in which they had been trained for centuries in places like Egypt. And by the way, in all the other places around them, all the different clans and tribes and peoples that they were surrounding them would have had their own, I don't know, communing with the dead kind of practices. And the idea here from Yahweh is that we are not doing those things anymore. When people have died, let them go. Because it is more important what is done now in your life than staying focused on the people who have died. And it means no disrespect or dishonor, but there's purpose in this. <clears throat> your life is not over because someone else has died. That's the idea. God still needs you. God needs us right now in this world doing good things and helping to expand the kingdom in a sense. And so taking too much time to focus on people who have died, kind of finished their race, so to speak, takes away from your own purpose and your own energy to continue to do the work that you have left to do. That's essentially what is happening in this section. And it's important for us to understand that the Israelites don't just, they're not a blank canvas upon which Judaism is slapped. 
they are people who already have their own traditions and habits, and they're having to end those habits and traditions in order to pick up the new habits and traditions. And this is one of those spots where the way that they tell the story indicates what perhaps was most difficult for them to let go of in order to pick up new habits and traditions. Does that make sense? All right. That was it. All right. Any thoughts or questions? Oh, I'm early. Really? No thoughts or questions? Well then, we're going to have a gift of 10 minutes here in Holy Week. And so reminder that it is Holy Week and come join us. We've got our services in the evenings and on Good Friday we have multiple services during the day. And then Sunday's big. I hope to see you here in person. And if online, then I'll wave at you. Thank you all very much. See you soon.